Hi, and welcome to the second episode of Activate. I'm Anna Knight, and I'm having 16 conversations about the work we're all doing to end gender-based violence. Today, my guest is Sam Billingham, who set up SODA, which is a wonderful organisation. I can't wait for you to hear more about the work that Sam does. But before we launch into the interview, I wanted to make you aware that we're going to be talking a little bit about coercive control in today's episode. Coercive control, for those of you who don't know, is an act or patterns of acts of assault, threats, humiliation, intimidation. It's all the different types of abuse that is used to control or frighten the survivor. This behavior makes people dependent, it isolates them from support, it deprives them of their independence. Now, the National Women's Aid Organization campaigned for making this a criminal offence, and it was made a criminal offence in 2015, which has been an amazing step forward. What we do know is that the numbers of offences that are recorded by the police each year is increasing, but the impact that coercive control has on a survivor, as you'll hear from Sam's story, can be intense. So... I'd like to ask you to bear in mind your own circumstances, your own experiences before listening to Sam, just to make sure you're keeping yourself safe. Welcome, Sam. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Anna, for the opportunity speaking on your podcast. We're very excited to have you here. Could you tell us just a little bit about who you are, what you do? Of course. So I'm Sam Billingham. I'm a survivor of domestic abuse and I'm also the founder of SODA, which stands for Survivors of Domestic Abuse. And what we do is we raise domestic abuse awareness, we reduce isolation and we support anyone who's experienced domestic abuse. Yeah, and I have to say the content you guys put out on social media is just phenomenal. I'm so grateful to have your time for our chat today. Thank you. I just believe that the one thing that we can all do for victims of domestic abuse is raise awareness. So that's one of the biggest things that we're really passionate about. So we use social media platforms as often as we can to raise that awareness because unfortunately a lot of men and women don't know that they're being abused until it's too late. So we feel that our awareness hopefully plants a seed for those who might need it. I said this in yesterday's episode, actually. I think there's so much misconception out there about gender-based violence, who it happens to, what it is. I know from myself, from the people that I work with, you often don't recognise it until you're so deep into it. Do you find that that's the case with the people you work with too? Oh, absolutely. From personal experience, I can absolutely relate to what you've just said. I was in an abusive relationship for three years. I existed with an offender for those three years, but it was only when I found the strength and courage to escape that I learned how actually controlled I'd been for those three years. So I was physically and psychologically abused in that period of time. I quickly accepted the physical behaviour. I just tolerated and accepted this as normal. But it was only when I learned about what we now know as coercive control and controlling behaviour, that's when I completely broke down at that point because I just didn't realise how controlled I'd actually been during that three-year period. And every aspect of my existence was controlled from who I could speak to. I was timed when I went to the toilet. He would stand outside the toilet door looking at his watch. 
I wasn't allowed to have a bath on my own. The only place I could go on my own was shopping. And then I was just bombarded with so many phone calls and text messages demanding to know who I was speaking to and what I'd been saying. So for me, it was knowing about the control inside that had the biggest impact on me as a victim and also as a survivor as well. Yeah, I remember my mind being blown when I looked back. Absolutely. I think when we're in the midst of it, we don't see it as abuse. We don't see it as control. We often see it as caring and loving because offenders of domestic abuse are very subtle in how they treat their victims and their partners. And I hope that with people who raise domestic abuse awareness for others, we can plant that seed for other people and they can leave sooner maybe or they can identify early warning signs in their relationship a lot sooner than I did. One thing that I know from talking to survivors from attending women's aid meetings as a participant as well is that sometimes it's easier to reconcile the physical things that have gone on but it's the psychological abuse, the coercive control that can have a much longer lasting impact. Yeah, absolutely. Again, I can totally, totally relate to that and for me the coercive control had a huge impact on my life. So from a very early age, all I ever wanted was my own office. I just wanted my own desk and my own telephone. When I was eight years old, I had electric typewriter for Christmas and I taught myself to type. I finished high school and then I went on to do business studies at my local college. And at 19, I got my first job as a legal secretary, which was just amazing for me. I was young, but I'd actually reached exactly what I wanted to do in life. And I loved, I loved the fact that I was independent, I was financially independent. My life had a sense of belonging and a sense of direction. I had a brilliant social life. I had my own savings. Life was pretty good. And then I met him. And for me, life changed completely. And the biggest thing that changed was when I made my disclosure to my employer at work. So it was at the honeymoon period of the relationship when everything is is new and exciting. And it was really difficult for me to try and process and understand what was actually happening because I was isolated very early on. I'd got no one I could confide in at that point. And one morning, the offender didn't want me to go to work. He said, if I loved him, I wouldn't go. And he said, the only way I got my job as a legal secretary was by sleeping with my boss. And he said that to me on several occasions, but I just brushed it off because it was just the most bizarre and ludicrous thing I'd ever heard. So I didn't, I never questioned it until this particular morning when the offender locked me in the flat that we shared together. And he threw my mobile phone out of the seventh floor window. I couldn't get into work that day. I couldn't even phone in to make an excuse for not turning up. And two days later, when I managed to get free, I remember being on the train into work and I was trying so hard to think what I could actually say to my employer because it just didn't make sense to me what was happening. But I just felt, oh, my boss will understand. I've never had a day off. My work is always brilliant. I always do everything that's required of me. And when I got to work and I tried so hard to explain what was happening to me behind closed doors, I was instantly sacked for making a domestic abuse disclosure. So for me, two things really. The first thing was I never made a disclosure to anybody else after that point because I thought, well, if my boss isn't going to believe me and help me, then no one else is. And the second thing was in that moment when my boss told me I was sacked, I lost everything. I lost my identity. 
I lost my sense of direction, my sense of belonging. And without education and understanding on my boss's part, he didn't realise that now I was going to be even more controlled and I was going to be in that environment with that offender 24-7. It just made me feel as though everything my offender had said to me, you know, I'm worthless, I'm useless, everybody hates me. It just felt as though that my boss had kind of agreed and collaborated with him. It really does take a long time to not only pick yourself up, but to try and get back to the point where you once was. Wow. Thanks for sharing that with us, Sam. I've had similar experiences myself in the workplace. When I made one of my first disclosures to my boss, at the time I was working for a clinical psychologist, that was my line manager, and I remember going in telling her I had been diagnosed with complex PTSD, only for her to tell me that I didn't have complex PTSD or any kind of PTSD because that only happened when your trauma was over and I was clearly still traumatised so that term didn't apply to me and it just took every moment of confidence I'd been building to raise the issues that I was having in the workplace with her. I think employers need to recognise that they have this enormous power to shape the trajectory of survivors' recovery and the way their life progresses. Absolutely. I completely agree with everything you've said. With the work that I now do, so I run online workshops for staff to be able to identify the early warning signs in colleagues. I believe that a lot of people are frightened when they hear the term domestic abuse. So I'm not talking about people who are experienced domestic abuse. I'm talking about people who could really help somebody in that situation so for example employers are in a brilliant position to help staff who might make a disclosure and they have to be really mindful how they respond to that disclosure because like myself and and maybe you and many others they could be the first person that they have made that disclosure to and I think the fear comes in where they think they have to get directly involved to support staff who might be experiencing domestic abuse and I always say as long as you acknowledge, adapt and address to domestic abuse in the workplace, then you are helping that person. So acknowledge that one in four women and one in six men do and will experience domestic abuse at some point in their life. Adapt, adapt to it. So it could be something as simple as putting a women's aid poster or a mankind poster up in the staff room and address it. Speak to that person, you know, speak to that member of staff, whether it's whilst you're making a cup of tea in the kitchen or call them into the office just to make sure everything's okay and simply ask them, is everything okay? For me, no one ever asked me that question. No one ever said, I don't know, are you okay? How are you? Nobody ever asked that. So as a victim and someone going through that, it's really hard for us to know who we can trust and to know who we can open up to. Anyone experiencing domestic abuse needs little prompts you know, adapting things in the workplace as simple as asking those questions because it's very rare that someone experiencing domestic abuse will just open up to you automatically. We've had someone at home who is controlling and manipulating everything. And I think the other key thing that I would like to say as well is it can be as simple as signposting. Signpost to Women's Aid, Mankind, SODA, that's the organisation I run. Just signpost them so they have a number or a website at hand when they're ready to speak out and get that support. I agree. Such a simple step. 
And I'd add that the national organisations that are out there do amazing work. think it's equally important to signpost people to local organisations as well, because they're the people with the outreach workers who are there on the ground waiting to support you, but they need to know you exist for that to happen. Supporting our local services is something I'm really passionate about. Absolutely. A shameless plug, but I do have a website and it has got a signposting page for men and women who might be suffering domestic abuse. And it's national and local specialist services that might be able to help. Oh, what a brilliant resource, Sam. I will share the link to it in our show notes. So if anyone is looking for it, they can find it really easily. Well, I could talk to you for hours, but we're going to have to wrap it up for today. Thank you so much for sharing so much of your story, sharing all your wisdom with us, Sam. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Wow, well, we heard from Sam just what an impact employers can have on the lives of survivors and how simple it can be to make a big impact for someone in a really low-key way. So today's invitation to some easy activism is to take the list of links that are on Sam's website, which I've signposted in the show notes, and send them to your HR department, or ask if you can put them up in your workplace in somewhere like bathrooms. Make sure that it's for men's and women's bathrooms if you have gender segregated bathrooms. But let's really make sure that no survivor is struggling to find the support that they need. You could also share some additional resources with them. And I would love it if you shared this podcast with your HR teams or managers so that we can be highlighting to employers just how easy it is to make an impact and promoting Sam's work as well. (laughs) Join us tomorrow when my guest is Gemma Hines. Gemma and I will be having a really interesting talk about non-fatal strangulation another new addition to the UK law, but something that has impacts way beyond what I ever understood or appreciated. It's a fascinating conversation and I hope you can join us.